0: This is Attorney Maytal Manzuri. And this is Attorney Alexa Steinberg. And together, we're Legally Blunt. Hey guys, thanks for joining us today. We've got a special guest in our office. It's the Honorable... Steve LaBelle, and he's going to be talking to us about all things marijuana, and we're going to be focusing a lot on the Medical Marijuana Regulation and Safety Act, which we also call the MMRSA, and you've probably heard us reference it in the past, and um, we're really going to get into the nitty gritty today and also talk about how it's going to apply in the future and what you can do to help position yourself for the
1: MMRSA. So the MMRSA was passed by Governor Jerry Brown in October of 2015 and went into effect January 1st of 2016. And what the MMRSA really does is it creates a Medical Marijuana Governance Bureau, or the Bureau of Medical Marijuana Governance, if you want to be proper about it, in Sacramento, which is very cool because, guys, now we have our own bureau, which I think is awesome. Yep, (laughs) the acronym is BUMMER. Which, again, we were in court in San Bernardino, and one of the public defenders who Maytel and I taught about Bummer told the judge that it was called Bummer, and the, the judge looked in. Do you remember the judge's yeah. face? Yeah, <laughs> she really liked it. She laughed. So, um, it creates Bummer in Sacramento. And what Bummer is going to do, well, first of all, it's run by Lori Ajax. Who we took from, what is it, the Department of Alcohol and Beverage Consumption? Is that what it's called? Control, yeah, ABC. Control, ABC. So, you know, we've got the next best person to be dealing with marijuana. We took her from alcohol. What a great thing. (laughs) (laughs) And what the MMRSA really is going to do is they're going to create a comprehensive licensing plan for the state of California, um, which is very exciting stuff for us. It's going to take them about two years or so to put together everything so that application process can open up to medical marijuana businesses all throughout the lovely golden state. Yeah, as we told you guys in previous
0: episodes, the original legislation that allows for medical use of marijuana, the Compassionate Use Act and the Medical Marijuana Program Act allow for certain things, but what they definitely do not do is provide a comprehensive system for distribution, for cultivation on a commercial level. And so, you know, in the past 20 years, it's largely left medical marijuana businesses or medical cannabis businesses out in the cold as far as legal protection. And with federal law you know preventing the DEA now from intervening in states where there is a comprehensive legal system we really really needed this type of legislation to help businesses come out of the shadows and come into
1: a legitimate industry the the industry is very excited about this whole comprehensive licensing plan and one of the, I would say, close to number one individuals that knows all about it is Steve LaBelle, who's here with us today to talk about it. Hi, Steve. Hi. Thanks for coming, Steve. It's really
0: an honor to have you. You are one of the experts that we use often when we're confused about the law. Steve and is our reference. <laughs> and you, just got, you have one or two years on us, I think. Just a couple. Just a couple. It's all good. We had a defense attorney the other day, very condescendingly tell us that he was going to be our mentor, and I looked at him and I was like, "Thank you, I have Steve Labelle. I don't need you." You know,
2: for those of us who practice law, you know, it's an always, it's an ongoing, you know, process. You never stop. You never stop learning. Um, never. And especially this the the medical regulations medical marijuana regulations in the state this is historical in nature it it brings in so many different areas constitutional law real estate law criminal law so um,
0: interesting
2: you know potency testing you know pesticides or dendicides there's so many different parts of this this is Herculean but um, it was very well written Um, as you may or may not know there were two assembly bills a senate bill the governor uh jerry brown he took those bills on the eve of the end of the legislative session and he reworked them and he handed them back and he says this is what i'll sign and 20 years ago then attorney general state attorney general jerry brown wrote the guidelines for the state and now this is full circle um it's his legacy and and hopefully we'll be able to to implement um, good regulations within the state. They're long overdue.
0: Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Steve, how and where do you come from? And then eventually, how'd you get involved in the cannabis industry?
1: P.S. you guys, Steve LaBelle, his, his nickname is the Kamesh. The commish, the commish. We have the commish is in our presence today. <laughs> I have a
2: lot, I Seem to have a lot of nicknames in this business. Uh, I've been a lawyer for thirty years. The first uh, ten or so, I was a, had a real estate firm of my own. I did a lot of work for Fannie Mae, various banks during the various real estate debacles we had in the state. Got offered a position in the Los Angeles then Municipal Court in the Glendale Judicial District. Even then for the 11 years, I was a um, Los Angeles Superior Court Commissioner. So So I was on the bench and was assigned to a criminal courtroom and did 150 jury trials. um, Most fascinating part of my life, but it does take a toll on you seeing society at its worst. Did it
0: make you feel at ease that this was justice, that this person had committed a crime, maybe murdered somebody, and so you were carrying out justice by sentencing them to life?
2: The determinate sentencing laws I found a little shocking in the beginning, because some of them, if once you knew the background of the individual... Explain
0: um, what determinate sentencing is. is there's a
2: mandatory sentence. It's a second-degree murder. There's a sentencing guideline that I have to follow.
0: For marijuana offenses, this does not apply, correct? This is for other crimes.
2: Correct, but a concentrate case that I was involved in, that individual was sentenced to eight years and four years county jail on the front end, and he's still in county jail. So,
0: that wow. so you were the judge on, or are you were no, an attorney on? I,
2: I was consulted on, but the point is that it still can happen, and that's why the industry still needs to be not act as though it's a free for all. And not act that there's no laws and we can do whatever we want until state implementation occurs what we always felt was there'd be some amount of blowback from law enforcement at the end of this and for all intents and purposes this very well may be the end of you know the war on marijuana
0: who is your average client
2: all spheres my it could be um, government who's asking me specific questions. It could be a cultivator who wants to come into compliance with local law. It could be a dispensary operator that wants to come into compliance with local law. Runs the gamut from up and down the state. I have projects from San Diego to Humboldt, conditional use permits, um, dispensaries, cultivation sites, manufacturers, who want to do the right thing, but everyone still has to bear in mind this is still a federal violation. And the harder we all work to become self-regulated and follow the state rules, um, it it lowers the risk of federal intervention. They haven't gone anywhere. They're all right there watching to see if we can pull this off. And I really think we can. Um, Again, it's Herculean, but it's for the best of the industry. Many will remember these days as the good old days, because this is gonna be something very different in the coming years.
0: What we talked about before was the closed circuit that the current law requires. It requires the collective system. And now the Medical Marijuana Regulation Safety Act opens it up to a much more traditional chain of distribution and production. So Steve, explain that a little bit more.
2: Under the new system, the cultivated uh, product would have to go to a distributor, who would then, after um, specific batch testing, would uh, direct the end product to the dispensary. So cultivators will bring the product to a distributor through a licensed transporter, who will then, after testing, take it to the dispensary. Um,
0: So how many licenses... Are available under this new law because you're talking about distributor you're talking about transfer there's all these different names how many licenses are available
2: there's 12 licenses but there's subcategories such in the cultivation subcategory there is categories for indoor mixed light such as that's
0: cultivation
2: correct Um, or outdoor there's also categories within those subcategories with respect to how much plant canopy is being grown. Stay- is canopy
1: square footage?
2: Canopy is when you look at the top of a plant, you look up how much area does that plant take up. That's the canopy of a plant. Oh, so there- I didn't know
1: that. No, I didn't know that.
2: See? We learned something <laughs> learned okay. That's the goal. Okay? <laughs> so there's categories of 5,000 square feet and under, from 5,000 to 10,000 square feet and up to 22,000 square feet for indoor or mixed light, outdoor up to um, approximately 44,000 square feet. But the larger licenses can be restricted by the state. We don't know, though, how many, when the state says those licenses will be restricted, what does that mean? Does that mean five? Does that mean 500? Time will tell. Originally, the licensing for the state was to be by January 1, 2018. Would it?
1: The look? application process. Right. It would be a really big process. <laughs> it's, it's a blessing in disguise that it's going to take it, a little bit of time.
2: It wouldn't work. It wouldn't the entire work. system has to be online to make this work.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And you need to build it from the ground up. Right. So the and cities think, need to get their act together. I mean,
2: think the most misrepresented group so far, and I hope that changes, is the manufacturing group.
0: Because they're characterized as the villain of the industry. Well, the
2: solvent, you know, there's solvent, butane type, non-solvent um. Type. So, that's,
0: so let's back up. So that's one of the licenses as well, right? So we've covered kind of the cultivation license, and there are several subcategories under that. And then uh, the distributor license, which could be its own podcast, the distributors and the transporters. And then now there's also the manufacturing license, which is... Um, could be with solvent or without, or volatile or involatile.
2: The solvent licenses, as it's stated in the state regulations, will be restricted in nature. What that means yet, again, we don't know. Typically, in the industry, the manufacturer of the concentrate may be different than the edible maker or the tincture maker. And they are grouped together under the manufacturing license classification which will result is they're going to have to be lawful joint venture agreements because you're not going to be able to separate the concentrate maker from the edible maker at that point or the tincture maker
0: in other words they're going to have to be under the same license is that what you're saying yes okay so um let's kind of give our listeners a uh sort of more of a a broad picture of what's going on here. You have the cultivation license of varying sizes. You have a manufacturing license, solvent or without solvent. Then there's a retail end of things, correct? Correct. And that is what we know as the dispensary. Are there any limitations on that?
2: Yes, there's a type 10 and a type 10A dispensary license. The type 10A dispensary license will not be allowed to cultivate, cultivation has to be separate under a cultivation license. You cannot hold both a cultivation license and a dispensary license unless you're a 10 A, which I'll explain in a moment. But there's an exception where a type 10 dispensary can grow on site if their ordinance or initiative had a vertical integration provision and you were actively cultivating under that provision prior to July of 2015.
1: So that means the local government sort of allowed vertical integration prior to what was the date that you said Steve? July 1st
2: 2015.
1: Which cities if any do you know of that
0: this qualifies for?
2: I believe and don't hold me to it but it was San Jose and there was one other city up in the Bay Area but in San Jose I again don't hold me to it I don't believe anyone was actively cultivating under that scheme because it just had been implemented. The problem in the city of Los Angeles is Proposition D is a limited immunity. It's not an authorization or permit or a license.
0: So Prop D essentially does require vertical integration in that you can only have one location for a medical marijuana business and the only medical marijuana businesses that are allowed are that 134 and so they would arguably have to do everything on site so that would qualify but what you're saying is that those 134 don't actually have licenses so they do not qualify under the vertical integration quote-unquote grandfathering that the MMRSA allows for.
2: So, now you could still, the, that dispensary could still go to a licensed cultivator and obtain or, or even now have a patient member cultivation site under the closed loop system. But Proposition D is a question when it's rewritten as in the, which is pending, as a license or some type of authorization, will They be able to preserve, will local government be able to preserve with state government vertical integration under the July 1st, 2015 date? In that, on that date, Proposition D was not an authorizing initiative or ordinance, it was only a limited immunity. Um, Time will tell. Uh, There's various opinions on that depending, you talk to three lawyers, you'll get seven opinions.
0: (laughs) Well, we have four in this room right now. (laughs) Okay, so except for San Jose and maybe one other city, basically vertical integration is not allowed, except if you have a Type 10A license.
2: Type 10A license is a, um, a restricted license where you can have no more than three retail dispensaries one manufacturing site of, I believe, of under five thousand square feet of canopy. I'm not sure if there's a canopy restriction on that, and up to four acres of plant canopy for cultivation. Um, so you can have it's a a, a, a um, three one four. So three dispensaries, one manufacturing site, and up to four acres of plant canopy. Again, the plant canopy cannot be all at that one site. It has to be apportioned up to whatever the local jurisdiction would allow up to the maximum license, for example, 22,000 square feet if it's mixed light or indoor, if the local jurisdiction allowed it. And you can see, this is all very, it's like a minefield to try and explain this um, I understand it. It's in my head, but I've been working on this for months and months. It's, it's difficult to explain, and l- let alone how it's comprehended as I explain it.
0: Well, that's why people hire you, right, Steve? True. <laughs> I mean, tax code is complicated. That's why we don't do our own
1: taxes. True. And that's why we call Steve when we have
0: questions. (laughs) (laughs) The MMRSA has these various licenses. What impact do you think that's going to have on those that are operating today illegally? Is there going to be room for them in the future?
2: Depends where. Um, If. It'll be easier for law enforcement to shut down illegal operations, especially in a, in a city, say, Los Angeles, once we do state licensing, the estimated 700, 800 cowboy shops will have a hard time um, staying in existence.
0: When you say cowboy shops, you mean those shops that don't qualify for pre-ICO. Right.
2: But are you ever going to, is law enforcement ever going to do away with a black market? No, I personally believe this will solidify the black market of cultivation if we over and over-tax.
0: Which is happening now.
2: Correct. Uh, individuals and entities have been sending, you know, cannabis for multiple generations over state lines for decades. And those are the ones that are going to go, Why should we come in um, from the cold if all we're going to do is be over-regulated and over-taxed? So
0: there are other states where we're seeing a problem where they've over-taxed, correct?
2: Correct. Colorado, for example, the black market is alive and well.
0: And what about Washington? From what I hear, Washington, the black market is thriving better than ever.
2: Right. And there's a glut of product, which is the fear we'll have here in, in California, too, that there'll be a glut of product. In the beginning, because of the um, potency testing and the regulate pesticide regulations, prices will most likely spike. And at some point, they'll dramatically drop if you look at the patterns we've seen in Washington and Colorado as more and more cultivators go through the licensing process.
0: So just in my experience in speaking with local politicians or anybody about this industry that doesn't really know the industry, the number one argument for legalization or for regulation is tax revenue. And so a lot of people see this industry as a tax cash cow. How do our listeners or how do people educate, you know, their representatives on the fact that they by overtaxing they could actually make this a much more illegal market?
2: You have to separate medical cannabis from the pending adult use initiative. If you go in a pharmacy and you get your prescription for whatever it is, are you taxed on your medicine? No. No. If you go to a liquor store and you buy your recreational bottle of wine, are you taxed? Yes. Okay, there's the distinction. So I, I believe there should be a distinction between agree a medical you. tax and an adult use tax if the adult use initiative comes into November. What's interesting that the adult use initiative plays very closely into the Medical Marijuana Regulation and Safety Act with the big exception of the distributorship network. There is not the same distributorship network in the adult so use. So
0: let's industry. explain what a distributorship is because I think the word is a little bit confusing and I think some people might know exa- not know exactly how it works.
2: Think of the liquor industry where a restaurant has to buy their liquor from authorized distributors, I believe there were three or four in the state.
0: So the idea is that, let's say Smirnoff or Budweiser makes the alcohol, but that company doesn't sell it directly to the restaurant. Is that correct?
2: They're not allowed to. The distributor marks, marks up the alcohol and then sells the alcohol to the restaurant for a profit. Often if you go, let's say, to Costco, the alcohol is cheaper than what the distributors have to buy it from, the restaurants have to buy it from the distributor. The distinction under the state regulations is that the cultivator and the dispensary or the manufacturer can contract with each other and set a price amount and the distributor is going to have to honor that contract but will be allowed to charge a set fee for the distribution. So the distributors that's the individual who through a licensed transporter will pick up the cultivated marijuana or pick up the edible product and will bring it to the dispensary or will bring it to the manufacturer.
0: So the transporter and the distributor, those are two separate licenses. The, the transporter is responsible for what? For the testing?
2: The transporter is responsible, it's like the Brinks Armored Guard. He'll They pick up the, the, um, the culti- cultivated cannabis And they will bring it under a secure method set forth in the regulations to the end user. This is different than delivery from a dispensary. There's a distinction. This is more of a commercial distributorship network.
1: But delivery from a dispensary, is that like Domino's? Correct. There we go. (laughs) Okay.
2: Which is unlawful in many jurisdictions, unfortunately.
1: And in Los Angeles, especially.
0: (laughs) Right. And what about under state regs delivery allowed?
2: Delivery is allowed out of a a licensed brick and mortar facility. You don't necessarily have to have patients coming in there, but it has to be from a brick and mortar facility that the local jurisdiction has approved first. So delivery is allowed, but it has to be connected either to a dispenser, dispensary
0: in the in the in the traditional sense a storefront retail dispensary
2: or a distribution hub sent you know location but only if the local jurisdiction allows it and again they're few and far between
0: and that's what we call a non-storefront dispensary that's what they're calling it
1: sort of like a a closed-door pharmacy if you will
0: Right. So there's so much to talk about. I mean, this is just like, you know, the tip
1: of the ice. Yeah. I mean, it's really? just like,
0: I think we've kind of covered the basics of the licenses, right? The other one is a testing facility um, for labs. And uh, beyond that, there's a seed to sale requirement, which some people are saying is almost impossible to implement and kind of the regulators are in la la land if they think they can actually do it. What do you think about that?
2: It's done in the alcohol industry. I mean, how many there are liquor stores and restaurants that are getting their alcohol every day. This is this is going to be modeled, good, better, and different. It'll be modeled after that. There's some tweaks to it. Um, the concern is this isn't like a can of beer you can stick on a shelf somewhere and forget about. This is an agricultural commodity that's very susceptible to um, pests, mold, and that's gonna be the key, is in the distributorship network. But you know the governor has appointed some really sharp people. The three of us have met the individuals in, in charge, and I, I, I was very impressed. And I've been to Sacramento to the implementation meetings and listen to, you know, food and agriculture and public health and consumer affairs. And they're on it. They're beyond, you know, ordering business cards and and furniture. You know, they're they're well into... um, And they're
0: also very intelligent, open individuals, which I think cannot be overlooked because often we look at regulators or government officials as kind of these... Duro,
1: <laughs> dura. You know, dura. give me an example.
2: I work with some colleagues that you felt like you wanted to stop off at Burger King on the way to work and get them a crown, and so they can put it in their head.
0: Uh, and I work with other. You, you told me I was with the judge that you told me that. What did you call him? The king of? Oh, I don't remember what you called him. Um,
2: it's all good.
1: Uh, <laughs> keep that work, staying in this room.
2: Then I work with other judges and colleagues who we would, you know all sit together for hours to talking the law we would never tell each other what to do but it was nice just to be able to talk it out
1: shoot the shit
2: right and this is what this is you know knowledge is power so wherever you get this from this is all subject to change um i urge everyone just to keep hold on like we are
0: so um theoretical and you know uh, unattainable and I think where we get into what's attainable is at the local level because if you can get in on the local level you are first of all it's required for a state license but second of all it makes it all a lot more tangible is that correct
2: my belief is that if you can get a local license you'd be getting, that conforms with state rules, it'll be much easier to get a state license because many of the local license applications are mirroring the state regulations and asking the same questions.
1: Well, I heard rumors that, you know, in the cities that are giving these licenses out, that it would be more difficult to get a state license if you've got a license from a city that has given out a plethora of licenses. Like track?
0: Agalanto, Desert Hot Springs, these areas that have given out kind of lots of licenses. There's a rumor out there that, you know, the state may only pick and choose a few of those to actually yeah, give from state that licenses.
1: I think city. for the
2: large licenses, that has always been true. When the larger licenses, it's written with specifically within the regulations, they're to be restricted. It does not say how many they'll give out. You would think since the... The intent of the regulations were written for the small and medium-sized Northern California cultivator. That's always been the intent. Good, better, and different. That's not my position. That's just a known fact. Right. We don't know how much canopy we need in the state until you know how much. There are thousands. Of small and medium-sized growers, until you know how many small licenses. I would you say eat?
0: hundreds of thousands, right.
2: probably. How can you start giving out large licenses if you're going to be wiping out the smaller licensing uh, licensees that the intent of your legislation was to protect?
1: Right. Now, that the adult crazy. use
2: is a little different. That more pushes or weeds them out over a five-year period.
1: Adult use is recreational right. marijuana,
2: which will have written into it, large-scale licensing. But cannabis industry is very different. You know, people will go buy a $5 bottle of wine or they'll go buy a $5,000 bottle of wine. And I think we've gotten to that point in cannabis a lot, too. Medical or adult use, same way.
0: And what do you think about this um, sort of fear or uh, hypothesis that once maybe once recreational passes in california but more so once the carers act passes which we will talk about later more but it's a federal um proposed legislation which would uh, reschedule marijuana to schedule two and also you know helps with a lot of the banking problems that uh
2: they're real smart here by the way
1: We learn from the best. From the, from the mouth of the commish to your <laughs> <Our> ears. <laughs>
0: um, so once that happens, what do you think about the, this fear that big tobacco is going to come in, big alcohol is going to come in, all these conglomerates are going to come sort of sweep the rug out from under the smaller business person?
2: To some extent, that's inevitable. Look what's happening in the small craft beer industry, where they're just being bought out for unconscionable numbers just to buy up market share. I think that's unfortunate, um, but that may be business basics. As much as that's against everything I believe in, it's maybe just what happens in life, you know.
0: Right, but that appetite, I mean, I've heard this um, comparison to the craft brewery often. I think that the appetite for the craft beer is very... Um sort of uh analogous to the cannabis consumer i think personally in that the cannabis consumer is very concerned with where it comes from they don't want to support big tobacco or big alcohol necessarily and so i think that um brands are going to be super important and if a, if a company brands themselves properly that brand will be very valuable and could compete with some of those bigger companies
2: yes and with the bigger companies also at this point from What we're seeing is, remember, genetically we bred out high CBD products a couple of decades ago. Those are being bred back. The medicinal um, part of the the plant, the CBD part, and you know there's a lot of other medicinal parts. Um, That's a whole area until its own in the medical field that we're really starting to see a lot of interest in um, from the medical community, and that's really, really different than an adult use that just wants to get stoned on a Saturday night. so I just feel that there's enough room in the industry for all different types. Yes, you're going to have big, big manufacturing, you're going to have branding, hedge fund owners, et cetera, et cetera, but this is a very unique industry.
1: I think Maital was really right when branding's really going to become a big thing. It's going to be necessary in order to survive.
0: Yes. Steve, where can our listeners find you and how can they contact you?
2: The best way to get a hold of me is email. It's my name. Oh, here they L- come. Steven Lubel, E L L at yahoo.com or gmail.com.
0: Steven's a one-man show. He really, I mean, it's remarkable everything that you get done. You know, I'm... Continuously impressed He always walks into my office With new information And he talks about it As if it's common knowledge And I'm always just In there nodding my head Going Okay register yes, this okay. information okay. Register this information Yes Yes I I just <laughs> want to say
1: Pause Let me get out my pen and paper Like hold on One quick second
0: <laughs> We can't keep up With the speed With which your mind works
1: Steve I hope you have Some sort of um, Sort of sorter On your email For uh, the influx of emails That you're going to get From listeners You
2: know it's fascinating I've talked to a lot of people I've done an outline that if someone shoots me an email I can send you a copy it's of. a
1: great outline
2: it's a work in progress but it really you know I did it for myself is I was working on implementing the state regulations so I had to do it because we were dealing with three different bills that were all coming down the wire at once so I'm happy to pass this along I've learned a lot from my colleagues and just incorporate this um, for everyone to use
1: and we have more information on our website, which is ManzuriLaw.com. We can also be found a little bit of a shameless plug on Facebook under Mansuri Law, and on Instagram and Twitter at 420 Attorneys. There you go, legally blunt.
0: Attorney Maytal Manzuri, and this is attorney Alexis Steinberg. Thank you so much for joining us as
1: we navigate the weeds of cannabis justice.